Good morning. Um, I want to thank you very much for indulging me for a few moments this morning. Your pastor and I have become very close friends over the last two or three months, and um, primarily through an organization called North Louisiana Interfaith, which is what it sounds like, a group of a group of different religions. The temples are involved, the mosque is involved, the Unitarians are involved, and of course lots of Christians are involved. Uh, and Lynn and I sometimes sit in the meetings and kind of roll our eyes. Uh, when my mother was very sick earlier this year, just prior to her passing away, we were in a meeting, and the guy who chairs these meetings asked Lynn to close with a prayer and to be sure to remember my mother in the prayer. And I said, thank you very much. I don't believe in intercessory prayer. To me, it's kind of arrogant to tell God what to do for me. Um, and Lynn said, I don't either. And the chairman said, well, some of us do. Go ahead and do it anyway. <laughs> <coughs> so my mother got prayed for, and, and it didn't do any harm. She, she died uh, comfortably. But when she asked me to do this today, I thought, we were in Houston last weekend. I don't know if you know this. Um, there was a training institute down there put on by the Industrial Areas Foundation, which grew out of Saul Alinsky's work back in the middle of the 20th century. And it, it was an extraordinary thing, the, the, the training was. We had e economics professors from Harvard, the publisher of the New, no, sorry, the editor of the New Republic was there. There were a world of wonderful speakers, and Lynn and I really enjoyed it. Uh, but it was during that trip down there that she asked me if I'd be willing to do this this week because she was having surgery done on her eyes. And I thought, this is a very interesting opportunity. And so I thought, what, how, does, how does one even begin to explain where I've been and what I've done spiritually? But I'm going to try. And in order to do that, <clears throat> I want to start with some excerpts from a poem by the 19th century British poet Percy Bysshe Shelley. The poem is called The World's Great Age. The world's great age begins anew. The golden years return. The earth doth like a snake renew her winter weeds outworn. Heaven smiles and faiths and empires gleam like wrecks of a dissolving dream. Another Athens shall arise and to remoter time bequeath like sunset to the skies the splendor of its prime, and leave, if not so bright may live, all earth can take or heaven can give. O oh, cease, must hate and death return. Cease, must men kill and die. Cease, drain not to its dregs the urge, urn of bitter prophecy. The world is weary of the past. Oh, might it die or rest at last. In this poem, Shelley, who was profoundly influenced by the work of the philosophers in the French Enlightenment, recalls the greatness of an earlier time, the golden age of Athens, 
around 500 BCE, also known as the Age of Pericles. Athens was a thriving city at that time, I'm sure you all know. Um, it was the world's first really great democracy. There were smaller democratic tribes and, and, and groups of people around the world prior to Athens, but as, as a world power on the world stage practicing democracy, Athens was the first. And it was a wonderful place and a wonderful time to live, provided you weren't a woman or a slave. Uh, but for everybody else, Athens was, it was a center of intellectual activity. It was a center for the arts. Uh, they did execute Socrates because Socrates did something that you have to be very careful about, especially if any of you are school teachers, and that's unduly influencing the youth of the city. Um, but Socrates was given an option not to be killed. He, he was told that he could just leave Athens for a while and then come back at some later point. He chose to drink the hemlock instead, and he said, who knows, who knows that the state of death is in any way worse than the state of life. There's no way to know that. And so he drank the hemlock, and Plato writes very movingly in his description of Socrates' death about that scene. But even though that happened, it was a place where freedom of inquiry was strongly encouraged. Athens supported Plato. It supported Aristotle. It supported the great dramatist Euripides, Aeschylus. It supported um, Anaximander, who, who really did incredible early work in science and mathematics, and Euclid, who invented geometry. All of that came out of the age of Pericles in Athens. And what Shelley is saying in this poem is that we learn from Athens that we must not rely on faith but on reason. Now, Shelley was sent down from Oxford, that is to say he was expelled because he published a pamphlet on the necessity of atheism. But it's not really atheism that he's arguing for in the pamphlet. Rather, it's the application of reason to human experience. And reason is not something that just sprang of itself upon the world. Reason, I guess there were a priori um, components of the reasoning process, but reason was actually explicated by Aristotle in the rules of logic that he created. And so we get, even though we're now 19 centuries later, we go back to the age of Pericles to begin to think in 19th and 20th century ways. And the rules of logic that Aristotle laid out are for the most part the rules of logic that still apply today. They're almost like mathematical laws. Well, <clears throat> when I talk about my religion, I probably confuse more Christians than I will you. And that's because... There are three components to modern Episcopalianism, and those components are reason, scripture, and tradition. And I'd like to just discuss with you a little bit about how we think of each one of those so that you may understand 
Because it's not often that you find somebody who started out in a fundamentalist Southern Baptist church that turned him into an atheist, that caused him to become a Unitarian, or maybe an Unitarian, and then to find him leave that church and go back to a Trinitarian church. Um, and so I, Lynn is interested in why I did that. She thinks I'm just faking it. I really ought to be here anyway. But uh, <laughs> that's not exactly true, and I, I want to just explain to you why. <clears throat> if reason were not one of the three real pillars of the Episcopalian church, I, I couldn't be a member of it. You notice I said reason, scripture, and tradition. I did not say faith. And many people don't know that. But faith is not one of the pillars of Episcopalianism. Faith is what people fall back on when the power of reason fails. And so you have, to go back to the Greeks, you have the myth of the sun being pulled across the sky by a chariot every day. It's a myth. There's no fact in that. It's just that they didn't know the science to explain what was really going on up there. So they created something and then said they believed in it. Now, Mark Twain is a little brutal about this. He says faith is believing what you know ain't so. But nevertheless, faith is sort of the, the fallback position when reason and science and logic fail us. And my belief is, and I guess this is a faith statement, in the fullness of time, reason and logic and science and mathematics will explain everything. We're just not there yet, but we're headed that way, and the history of human progress is a history of advances in all those areas. Um, well, how do, you, how do you take something like reason, then, and logic, and apply it to something like the Scripture, because that's one of our other legs. And I, I have to just stop a minute and talk about what the Scripture is, that is to say the canonical Scripture, what, what we call the Bible. What is that? It's a book of literature. Now, definitionally, literature is not fact. The genres of literature are poetry, drama, fiction, the essay. Not fact. The Bible is not a book of history, although it contains some history, some history that can be verified independently, but it also contains a lot of stories that cannot be verified outside the, the belief that the Bible is literally true in, in all of its words. I love the creation myth in the Bible. I think it's a wonderful story to get at ultimate truth. But how in the world can anybody believe that it's factual? Of course, you know, this is a debate that goes on in illustrious bodies like school boards all the time. Another thing Mark Twain said was, in the beginning God created idiots. That was only for practice, and then he made school boards. But uh, <laughs> I, 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 won't, I won't go any further. That's a, as, as you heard in the introduction, I spent 32 years in the school system, and I've got some bones to pick. But I, that's not what I'm here today to do. Uh, but you look, you look at that story, that creation myth, in the book of Genesis. Well, in the first place, it's got a talking snake. <clears throat> 
and, and people who believe the Bible is inerrant, believe it's literally true in every single verse, don't seem to have a problem with talking snakes. Um, secondly, the snake tells the truth when God tells a lie. Because in that myth, God says, if you eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die this day. And the snake says to Eve, no, you won't. He's just saying that you're not going to die today if you eat it. So they go along with the snake. They eat the fruit. They don't die. Now, what is God? <clears throat> is he just dumb? Is he lying? Or is he such a blustery blowhard that he thinks he can make wild threats like that and people will be sucked in by them. Because the fruit, you know that the, 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 the apple story? That comes from John Milton. He created, when, when he wrote his, whatever that poem, Paradise Lost, whatever it was, he put an apple in that story. But the Bible, the biblical story, says the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Well, more proof that it's not a factual story because that tree doesn't exist. At least not in any book that I've ever read on botany or biology. There's not a tree that grows the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. So what is the story really about? It is not how the world began. It's just not that. And I don't think the author intended it to be that. That story is about what happens when we try to assume unto ourselves the ability to know what is good and evil. Now, I've taught philosophy for several semesters to graduate students at LSUS. And one of the things I learned in teaching that course is using philosophical method, you can make anything good and anything evil. If you think murder is the ultimate wrong thing to do, raise your hand if you oppose the people who tried to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Usually I get one hand from somebody perverse. Um, but, but actually, you know, people don't have a hard time imagining the murder of Adolf Hitler and certainly don't consider it some sort of horrendous thing. They think it would have been a good thing for humanity. And you can get there, I promise you, using philosophical method any way you want to. You can get anywhere you want to. So what do we do with Scripture? Well, having taught and read a lot of philosophy and thought a lot about what it is that human beings do and this whole issue of good and evil, I finally decided that it wouldn't be too bad a thing if people just followed the precepts that are laid down in the Scripture as Christian precepts, the behavior of Jesus, the behavior that Jesus advocated. Now, I don't want to say that I even necessarily believe that Jesus is a historical figure. I don't know. There's not any independent verification of that other than a scant mention in the writings of Josephus. But otherwise, all we have are the gospel stories 
And they are the canonical ones that are in the Bible, and then they're the, uh, the apocryphal ones that you may have been reading about lately, Mary Magdalene and Thomas, and those people wrote Gospels too. Um, but beyond that, we, don't have, we cannot independently even verify the existence of Jesus. I personally believe he probably was somebody because oral traditions come from somewhere, and the writings about him emerge about 40 years after his death. That's not too long for an oral tradition to contain a certain amount of accuracy, 40 years. I mean, I can think back 40 years. Uh, 1967 was three years after John F. Kennedy was assassinated. I mean, it's not that long ago, and there's lots of oral tradition around John F. Kennedy's assassination. So the same thing, I, I feel the same thing about Jesus. Now, they didn't have the media to preserve that stuff the way we do, but I just feel like there probably was somebody who, who advocated a moral code that I find compatible with the way I think people ought to live. And so... When I look at the scripture, I look not for something to profess a belief in. I don't even understand what that means. I look, um, I look rather for the lessons that we might learn from it. And I do that even in a skeptical way. But one thing I know is true, whether you're Jewish, Islamic, Buddhist, Hindu, Christian, Islamic, did I say Islamic? Whatever you are, I know and you know <laughs> that evil dwells in every human heart, just like good does. And we're all capable of great good, and we're all capable of great evil. And that's just a fact. We, we have a practice at Holy Cross of hiring as a janitor. We always hire somebody who's a, a convict who's been released because they can't get a job. And yet we know the only reason we're not in those shoes is we just didn't get caught at some of the things we did. Um, <clears throat> so that's what I see about Scripture. Then you come to tradition, the third leg of Episcopalianism. And how does tradition, which would seem to fly in the face of Percy's argument, get rid of the past, how does tradition fit into a modernist Christian religion? Well, I just have to tell you that I derive a certain amount of comfort from living a liturgical year. I know what's coming next. Uh, we are in the season we call Advent right now, the season prior to the birth of Jesus. And during Advent, liturgical Christians are expected to reflect upon their own lives to look at what they've done during the previous year and to find, to the extent possible, to find ways to atone for the evil that we've done so that when the coming of the Savior, if that's what you happen to believe, does occur, we are in the right state of mind to accept him. Now, again, you know, I'm talking on almost a mythological plane, but it has to do with our interaction with the world. And this is one thing I have to say to you about why I left this congregation. I was raised in the video store, if you know what I'm talking about. After we left the Baptist church, my father, who was a, a, an absolutely committed, logical, reasoning atheist, 
found Unitarianism, and we would drive 90 miles at least once or twice a month to go over there and go to church, and then we'd eat at McDonald's, which was the best part of the day for us. But uh, anyway, that's where I was, and for a long time, when people asked me, you know, anytime you apply for a job, do anything in this country that has a separation of church and state, you have to tell them what your religion is. Uh, and so I would put Unitarian, and it worked out fine because nobody knew what it was. Uh, I remember one person asking about that, that building over on Freeport Barksdale Highway, why do you worship underground? Well, if you've been in it, you, it's not underground, but you would think that from the outside. Um, and I, I did intellectually, and still do, accept the whole concept of free inquiry and free thought that's so much a part of Unitarian tradition. But one of the reasons I left was the move. This is a beautiful place. It's one of the prettiest churches in town. And everybody I know who comes here comments on that. I heard in your welcome this morning that people of all races are welcome in this church. I heard that. I don't see it. And I would argue that the location of this church almost guaranteed that. So that was one thing. I mean, it's a beautiful place. I'm a Sierra Club member. I feel right at home here as a Sierra Club member. The other thing was that even though the Unitarians, and I was, I was here at the time Bart Gould was, part of the time. Even though Unitarians have a philosophy that anybody would call liberal, that anybody would consider reaching out to the community, I never found anything happening here. And I just, I, that's as blunt as I can be with you. You had great services. Bart could preach good sermons. Uh, the parties were fun. But there was nothing that the church was doing in the community that's, that's in so much pain in this town. And, and that bothered me a lot. Now, there are Christian congregations all over Shreveport, look on Uri Drive for one, that do more evil than they do good in the community. And I'm certainly aware of that, and so I do not say Christianity is the right place to go if you want to do good in the community. No, I don't say that. I say a specific church that I belong to turned out to me to be the right place because we are involved in all kinds of activities in the community. And that's what my spirit, whatever spirit is, tells me I need to be doing. I need to be reaching out. I need to be helping people who need help. I need, I need to spend my time with people who don't look and act like me in order to become a more complete human being. I was at uh, Evergreen Baptist Church, which is a black Baptist church, on Friday morning, meeting with a couple of black Baptist preachers. We didn't talk about theology, I'm sure you can imagine. We were talking instead about how we organized this community in the face of an obviously racist school board to make some changes. Um, I know those ministers because they and the Church of the Holy Cross belong to an organization, the interfaith organization, that is committed to changing the community and to make improvements for the better. 
So I don't have, as long as the Church of the Holy Cross reaches out to the community in the way that it does and serves poor people in the way it does, so uh, I'm chairman of the vestry board, and at our next meeting I'm going to be proposing that we pay $10,000 to help the rescue mission pay off its mortgage. Uh, and I think that's going to pass. Not all of our vestry members are going to support it, but I think I've got enough votes to pass that. Last month we gave uh, $7,500 to an outfit called the Soldiers of Compassion Outreach Ministry, which works with young people who've been adjudicated and have to be supervised after school hours. We have our own Hope House, which we operate and fund, and what it does is provide a place for the homeless to go in the daytime because shelters put them out. They won't let them stay there in the daytime. So they go to Hope House. They can do their laundry there. They can take a shower there. They, um, they have voicemail that's available to them. They have a mail drop so that if they're getting a check or something, there's some place to mail it to that they can be sure they can find it. That's just one of the, the ministries that we're involved in. And I, I, I don't think I would have any need for a church if it was not doing that. I tell you, even though my father was a Unitarian and mother went to church with him, after he died, she became a Methodist. Now, I can't be a Methodist because I don't have that inner glow that mother had. The glow just isn't there. I'm, I'm, I'm too cynical about it. But I think what happened to me is I got my father's brain and my mother's heart. And so if I'm going to be religious in any way, it's going to be religious in a way that reaches out to the community. And that's really where I am. Those three, those three legs, reason, scripture, and tradition, Make it possible for me to call myself a Christian, even though if you talk about the God of the Old Testament, I'm also an atheist. And I know that Unitarians are very open to the beliefs of others. I think you may be more open sometimes to Buddhists or Wiccans than you are to Christians, but that's okay. Uh, but I, w- I, just, I just do want you to know that in the modern Christian world, there's something that may be a whole lot different than what you conceive Christianity to be. Now, when Lynn asked me to do this, um, she made sure I understood there wouldn't be any pay. And I told her that was fine. I didn't expect to be paid. All I wanted was a platform. Um, (laughs) But I would just encourage you to understand that if you're going to be a church and you want to be known in the community, your impact has to be felt beyond the walls of this beautiful sanctuary. And there are two ways to do it, service and money. I believe in both. But I encourage you to think about that. And certainly, always, ultimately, we all have to be true to ourselves. I cannot say that I believe things I don't believe. But I can say that I know what it means to me to be a Christian and that I think it pretty much conforms to modern Episcopalianism. I want to thank you all for uh, listening to me this morning. Thank you for inviting me.